have a, a thing with a little W on the top of it. It says, toward a classic strategy for evangelical renewal. Um, I, I was in the pastoral ministry for 24 years. But the last 10 of that, I ended up speaking quite a bit at various seminaries around the country and in the United Kingdom and in Canada. <coughs> and uh, had an opportunity to come teach a Doctor of Ministry class at Western. And it was during that time, three years ago or so, that uh, um, they had mentioned uh, a position there at the seminary that they'd been working at creating uh, for me. I had no idea about that and asked if I would come and kind of rebuild the homiletics department, the preaching department there. And so we agonized, to tell you the truth, friends, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth about whether or not to go. I would figured I would have been in pastoral ministry uh, for all of my life. And uh, I won't go into all of the details. One of the reasons why, however, I decided to go to Western Seminary, to be honest, is that I, did, I would not have left the pastoral ministry to go to a place where I would be bringing ice to Eskimos. There are certain very fine seminaries that had a position been offered to me, I would not have gone for the simple reason that I didn't want to go and say what everybody else was already saying. Um, I am very, very thankful for the opportunity the Lord has provided at Western. And Western is changing. Institutions change slowly, especially if you want there to be a minimum of casualties. But things are changing there, and I say that to the glory of God. And I just bring this to you to give you a sense of that change. This is a living document. We are continuing to add to it. I give it to you for your um, perusal and, and, and input in the sense that when you look at this, if it triggers some thoughts in your mind, send me an email with some thoughts related to it because we're looking to improve it. But the academic dean, Randy Roberts, and I have kind of put this together, and it's shaping what we are seeking to do at the seminary, where we've referred to it as a classic strategy for evangelical renewal. And this, other than our doctrinal statement, is really our lead piece. Um, it's summarizing what we want Western to be, and a couple of key terms right up front, reformation and revival, and what some of that means and as it relates to what we've done here, you'll notice in the section entitled, What are the Key Elements in Promoting Renewal? And you drop down um, four or five lines that included in this is the systematic proclamation, both preaching and teaching, of God's Word that, one, is expository in content and passionate in delivery, and two, emphasizes those doctrines that appropriately exalt God and humble humanity. For example... God's holiness and grace. That's what you've just heard. Human depravity, justification by faith alone, God's sovereignty, human responsibility, the supremacy of Christ, the inerrancy, authority, and sufficiency of Scripture, etc., with a view toward converting the unregenerate and further consecrating the regenerate. That is a very, very strong statement that summarizes uh, a lot of what we do, and I wanted you to see that and ask you to pray for us and uh, uh, to, to think about us. And one of the ways that Western is looking at working this out in a practical way is through a ministry that we began a year and a half ago called the Spurgeon Fellowship. Um, one of the things that frightened me when I got to the seminary is that I very quickly discovered that what I was teaching in my classes Monday through Friday would often get invalidated every Sunday both in terms of theological conviction and the practice of ministry. And so as we think about this business of reformation and revival, it became plain to us that one of the most important things we can do is to seek to have influence among pastors. Now, I happen to be very, very fortunate to attend a wonderful church in Vancouver where my pastor, who's right here, Jeff Seavey, is in many ways the embodiment of everything we're trying to teach our students to be. But having said that, I know that Jeff is in a rare minority. And um, so we started the Spurgeon Fellowship with a burden to encourage pastors. And um, so you have the brochure. It tells you who we are, who we're having. We have a meeting this next Tuesday. If you would like to go, if you could email...
on, on the card here, www.thespurgeonfellowship.org, and let us know you want to come. We'll have lunch for you. And uh, if this theme today is scratching you where you itch, the opening theme on Tuesday will be Jonathan Edwards on the Doctrine of Conversion, taught by a fellow by the name of Scott Reevely, Dr. Scott Reevely. The second session will be led by Dr. Gene Getz. Um, but uh, just want to make that available to you. You can go online. We, we have not only the information about the meetings, we also have a pastoral theology journal that is only online. We don't do it in print form, only, only uh, electronic. But that's free and available to you. We have a new edition coming out February 1st entitled Fads, Schemes, and Gimmicks. Um, uh, the first the first issue was what is a pastor, and uh, I believe the issue coming out in the summer is called what is the gospel. So um, anyway, that just tells you a bit about what we're doing and our commitment to churches and men in ministry. And if we can serve you in any way, friends, we would very uh, very much appreciate the privilege of being able to do that. All right, David suggested that I talk for a few moments. And then we open it up for questions. And so I have this, um, this sheet for you on the top entitled Reformation Society of Oregon. And uh, I thought I would just put this together so that you could take it home, so that you could peruse it. But what I would like to do is actually look at all these passages. I'd like us to just step through that process right now of looking through these passages, not saying all that could be said about them, but saying in particular those themes, uh, those things that are related to this concept of regeneration, and in particular monergistic regeneration. But before we do, friends, let's, let's pray and ask God to give us help now. Father, we thank you for the good food. We thank you for the hospitality of this congregation and for its pastor. We thank you for the ministry of monergism and pray that you would prosper it and bless its influence. Father, most importantly, we thank you for your Son, the one that we love, the one whose glory and fame and name we seek to make known to this world. We are thankful for the empowerment of the Spirit apart from whom all attempts at doing this would be futile. We ask that you'd guide us now, Father, as we look through several passages and uh, try and see some common themes emerge. I pray that they would prove to be helpful and encouraging for these dear brothers and sisters. And I pray and ask, O oh Lord and God, that more than anything else, we would unashamedly declare that salvation is of the Lord. I think of many of these men and women who perhaps at this moment are in very difficult church situations, who find themselves in local congregations that are very much hostile to the things that we've been talking about. I pray, Lord, that you would grant them wisdom that it's not enough for us to know what to say, but to consider how to say it and when to say it. To season our words with salt. I pray, O oh Lord and God, that you would grant these folk perseverance. And to realize, O oh Lord and God, that while revival is exciting, and that often... In a week, something can be accomplished that would ordinarily take years to accomplish. Reformation is something much different. It's slow going. Ponderous. At times, imperceptible in terms of its progress. And so, Father, we need grace and we need perseverance. We need mutual encouragement one toward another. I ask that you would sustain these brothers and sisters. And Father, for the brothers and sisters who are here in congregations where this is a settled issue, it's a done deal, 
but the people of the congregation already enthusiastically embrace it, I, I ask, O oh Lord, that they would not allow this to become commonplace. That it wouldn't become ordinary. That it would remain something that even at this very moment still thrills the hearts of your people. Use us to that end. Now guide us, Father, and help us as we seek to think our way through your word. In Christ's name, amen. Two big ideas, friends, really, that I wanted to pass on to you. And again, for some of you, uh, forgive me if this is so simplistic and redundant, but I thought it wouldn't hurt to give you a couple of definitions of regeneration. Um, I've illustrated it. I've given you, I suppose, my own definition in the prior hour. But here are a couple of classic um, explanations of what regeneration is. And then we'll talk about the distinctives of regeneration. And we'll just work through several passages that ultimately will communicate to us three big ideas. Namely, that regeneration is a monergistic work. That it is predicated upon the work of Christ. One of the things that Reformed people often do is divide their theology from the cross, and that is a tragic thing. And thirdly, and maybe most importantly, regeneration is effectual. Um, and uh, frankly, there would never have been a lordship controversy in the 1980s. John MacArthur would have never had to write a book about that subject had we understood the doctrine of regeneration. But a defective view of regeneration is what led us to the carnal Christian theory, thus the need to defend the concept of the lordship of Christ. <clears throat> the definition of regeneration, the first one from Wayne Grudem, regeneration is a secret act of God in which He imparts new spiritual life to us. Very simple, very straightforward. Notice a secret act of God. It's not seen. Again, we see the fruit, but not the root. We experience the consequences of it, but not the act of it. It is the impartation of spiritual life. It's that which takes a person dead and makes them alive. Um, shortly after Lori and I were married... Um, just a few months after we were married, and I was in seminary making just a couple hundred bucks a month, a fellow who was in our church came up to us and told us that he ran a mortuary and asked if we would like to live there and do, quote-unquote, light housekeeping. <laughs> and uh, I won't go into all the details about what was involved in light housekeeping, but we had many strange and wonderful experiences there in that place. Always had flowers on our table, by the way, which was kind of neat, but... Uh, um, uh, you know, just suppose on one occasion I got this wild idea that I would uh, leave our little apartment, walk down the hallway to the room where embalming took place. I walk into the room and I notice there on the table is a person being prepared for burial. And just suppose, theoretically, I just get this wild idea, I take a very sharp pin, and I prick the big toe of that body. What kind of response can I expect? What if I prick it four times? Harder and faster. No response. Why? You say, well, aren't the person's dead? Meaning what? No capacity to respond to physical stimulation. And in the spiritual realm, friends, that's exactly what we're talking about. People who are dead in sin have no capacity to respond to spiritual stimulation. They need to be made alive. That's what regeneration is. The second from Anthony Hukama. John, where's John? John? John, do you sell this book, Saved by Grace? It, it, it is maybe the best single volume on the doctrine of salvation that you will find. Anthony Hukama, who is now in heaven. We have any CRC people here? Any CRC people? He was at Calvin Seminary in a day when Calvin Seminary was very, very strong. And he wrote three books related to systematic theology. One called Created in God's Image, which is maybe the best book on the nature of humanity. He wrote a fabulous book called The Bible and the Future on eschatology. And regardless of your eschatological position, it is a warm-hearted, encouraging book that will want to make you preach the return of Christ. And then he wrote this book 
um, saved by grace. In fact, on the back of the book is my endorsement of it under the name Reformation and Revival, a, 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 a journal that I wrote a, a, a review of this book on. This book by Anthony Hookema is fabulous. He says, Regeneration may be defined as that work of the Holy Spirit whereby He initially brings persons into living union with Christ, changing their hearts so that they who were spiritually dead become spiritually alive, now able and willing to repent of sin, believe the gospel, and serve the Lord. It's the fountainhead regeneration is of all other, all of the other of the blessings of salvation. And finally, Robert Raymond, you probably know this book, huh? It is, for all intents and purposes, the replacement of Louis Burkhoff's Systematic Theology. It was kind of the standard Reformed text for many years. Raymond says, By the Spirit's regenerating work, the elect sinner, one, is made spiritually alive, thereby opening and favorably disposing him to the things of the Spirit, which were foolishness to him before. Two, is convinced of his sin. Three, is enlightened to the all-sufficiency of the Savior, Jesus Christ, as he is offered in the gospel. And four, is renewed in his will, rendering him thereby willing. No sinner is brought to Christ against his will and able to embrace Jesus Christ as his Savior and Lord. So, various Degrees of sophistication, various degrees of um, substance, but nonetheless, dear friends, all communicating the idea that regeneration is God's work in which he creates new life, a new nature in someone who is otherwise dead in sin. So that's a bit of a definition. Now, some of the distinctives of regeneration, and I could have added more to this, but I picked three of the most obvious, and I'd like us to look at um, several of these passages. Turn again first to John chapter 1. The distinctives of regeneration. Firstly, I want you to see that regeneration is a monergistic work. A monergistic work over against a synergistic work. So that, for example, when we think of sanctification, sanctification is a synergistic work. God works and we work. Now, if we think about Philippians chapter 2, at the end of the day, we work because God works. But it is a synergistic work. It is God granting me grace and me as an act of my will seeking to put to death sin. And sometimes you know how rigorous that fight can be. Some, some, you know at times how volatile that kind of thing can be. Sanctification is a synergistic work, but when we think about regeneration, it is, by definition, a monergistic work. One person accomplishes it, and it's not us. So, for example, as a little boy, I was misled when I was giving a, given a little tract that said how you can be born again. And at the end of the day, you're told at the end of the tract, accept Jesus in your heart, and by virtue of that, the Holy Spirit will give you the new birth. And it confuses the very thing we talked about in the last session. I do not bring about the new birth for the simple reason, friends, that as you are to see, regeneration is a work that God does all by Himself. That's why we are never told, get yourself born again. There's a reason why that responsibility is never given to us. Make yourself born again. Get yourself born again. No, we're going to see something quite to the contrary. Again, we looked at this passage, friends. Uh, I'm going to risk you feeling as though I'm being redundant. Um, but again, uh, so that you see the cumulative evidence of the Scriptures here. Verse 12, But to all who did receive Him, He gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in His name, who were born not of blood, not of the will of flesh, or of the will of man, but of God. The new birth, being born again, is a work of God. A work that He does all by Himself. Now, as we will see in a few moments, friends, 
if God is in fact the agent of the new birth, there is an instrument that he always uses to affect the new birth. We'll talk about that in a moment. Chapter 3. John chapter 3. I would encourage you, friends, never to read John chapter 3 without the prior couple of verses from John chapter 2, because John 3 is an illustration. This is one of those places where we wish our translators had not inserted a chapter break at this point. You'll notice that in chapter 2, verse 23, while he, that is Jesus, was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many trusted in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. Now, we would look at that and say, Revival! They're believing in Him. They're believing in Him. <coughs> You'll notice verse 24. Jesus, however, would not entrust Himself to them. You know, there's a play on words here in the Greek text. John writes, They were believing in Him, but He was not believing in them. Maybe that's the issue, isn't it? Not that we believe in Jesus, but that He believes in us. In the sense of really knowing our hearts, you'll notice, since he knew them all, and because he did not need anyone to testify about man, for he himself knew what was in man. He can read a man's heart. He knows what's inside of a man. And if a person's belief is built on the miraculous, the spectacular, Jesus will know that this is not a faith that is authentic, ultimately authored by the Spirit of God. Illustration, chapter 3, verse 1. There was a man from the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. Here's an illustration of what's just been taught in the prior few verses. This man came to him at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one could perform these signs you do unless God were with him. What a wonderful compliment! What a sense of honor! And Nicodemus, I would remind you, is no small guy. We're told later on in the chapter by Jesus, are you not the teacher in Israel? Very strong in the Greek context, in, in the Greek text here. That Jesus' affirmation of Nicodemus is, you're the prominent teacher in all of Israel. So here is the prominent teacher in Israel paying Jesus a wonderful compliment. And apparently Jesus has not taken the Dale Carnegie course on how to win friends and influence people because he doesn't even say thank you. Well, that's really nice. I appreciate that. No. You know what he does in verse 3? He does what the end of chapter 2 says that he can do. He cuts right to the chase. He reads the heart of Nicodemus. I assure you, truly, truly, I tell you, this is something you can take to the bank. Unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, again, three things I want you to notice from that little verse. Notice the word unless. There is that necessary precondition. Unless someone is born again or born from above. And you know what I find to be very interesting, friends? You see that verb, born again, unless someone is born again? That is in what we call the passive voice. You say, well, Art, what in the world do you mean by the passive voice? Greek verbs have one of three voices. Passive, active, middle. Here's the active voice. I drove to the store. Here's the middle voice. I drove myself to the store. Here's the passive voice. I was driven to the store. I didn't do it. It happened to me. And here, the voice that is used is not the active or the middle. It's the passive. Jesus is saying, this is something that must happen to you. You don't make it happen. You don't cause it to happen. It is something that must happen to you. You must be born again. Unless you are, you cannot see the kingdom of God. And of course, Jesus goes on to unpack this with Nicodemus. 
And he draws Nicodemus' attention to Ezekiel chapter 36. This is something Nicodemus should have understood. It was something talked about very clearly in the prophetic literature. And you'll notice then in verse 8, the wind blows where it pleases. He's talking about the wind, likening the wind to the spirit. And that's interesting because the word pneuma and the word spirit is pneuma. Uh, he's, 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 he's got a play on words going. The wind blows where it pleases and you hear it sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the spirit. Notice, friends, in verse 8, that he stresses the sovereignty of the Spirit in this work. So a person can't see the kingdom of God unless he is born from above. A work that Jesus says occurs by or as a result of the work of the sovereign Spirit. Again, a monergistic work. The Spirit effects this new birth. And Nicodemus then asked the million-dollar question, and I wish people would understand verse 9, because verse 9 opens up the whole chapter. How can these things be? And what he is saying is not, give me an anatomical explanation of how this occurs. He is saying to Jesus, theologically, how can God arbitrarily give new life to someone who is dead in sin, to someone who is defiant? How can God arbitrarily give a man new birth? Theologically, how can God do that? And he goes on, Jesus, from that point through verse 15, to talk about being lifted up on the cross. Which tells us something very important that we'll come back to in just a moment. And that is, the basis for the new birth is the cross of Christ. How is it that the Holy Spirit can arbitrarily give new life to someone who was born dead? It's because Jesus purchases that gift on the cross. Everything always comes back to the cross. The cross, that's the basis for everything. But again, I would remind you, a monergistic work, the Spirit does this. You are the passive recipient of it. And unless this happens... You can't see the kingdom of God, let alone choose it. Chapter 6. John chapter 6. Verse 60. Therefore, when many of his disciples heard this, they said, This teaching is hard. Who can accept it? And uh, it's a bit difficult to know exactly what Jesus is referring to. Is he referring to the fact that uh, he's talked about sovereign election, that no one can come to the Father unless the Father draws them? Is he talking about the fact that they need to eat his flesh and drink his blood? Is he talking about the fact that life will come to them by virtue of his giving up of his life for the world? All of that seems to be a part of what causes the people to say this teaching is hard, who can accept it? Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were complaining about this, and given the fact, friends, that this is a discourse on the manna that has come down out of heaven, the word here, complaining, gonguzo, is the very same word used in the Septuagint to speak of the complaining and murmuring of the Israelites in the wilderness. Remember the Israelites groaning, complaining, unhappy with God. Here that same kind of ethos is being communicated. He asked them, does this offend you? Then what if you were to observe the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Good night. You guys are upset about what I've said to you. What if you saw me ascend into heaven? What if you saw me rise from the dead and ascend into heaven to where I was before? Which implies what? His pre-existence. This is the only way you're going to get it. The Spirit is the one who gives life. The flesh doesn't help at all. This is the work that the Spirit does. The Spirit gives life. It is a monergistic work. 
He says in verse 65, this is why I told you that no one can come to me. Not no one will come. Not no one may come. No one can come. It is a moral impossibility unless it is granted to him by the Father. Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. Jeff has been preaching this at Living Water these days. How many weeks on being dead, Jeff? How many weeks have you preached on being dead? <laughs> so we're really dead at Living Water. We are dead and we are waiting for new life, which I think we get this week. Uh, I love chapter 2, 1 to 10 because it is the biography of the believer. It is the biography of the believer. It is the biography of every believer. He begins by saying, you were dead. You were dead. An inability to respond to spiritual stimulation. And by virtue of being dead, we are dominated by three forces. We are dominated by the spirit of the age, the zeitgeist, the world... We are dominated by the ruler of this realm, the devil, and we are dominated by our own inherent fallenness, the flesh. By virtue of that, we are objects of God's wrath, under the wrath of God. Of course, verse 4 introduces the great contrast, but God. But God. One of the greatest sermons I've ever heard is Lloyd-Jones preaching on, but God. Notice who is abundant in mercy. Whatever is about to take place on the part of God, notice that God is a subject, but God, here, His lavish mercy, because of His great love that He had for us, so we have mercy and love, notice verse 5, made us alive. And again, I ask you, what is the subject of that verb, made us alive? The subject is God. God made us alive. This is something that God himself did. It is a monergistic work. He made us alive with the Messiah even though or when we were dead in trespasses. When we were dead, God made us alive. That's why he exclaims, by grace you're saved. He says in verse 8, for by grace you're saved through faith and this not of yourselves, it is God's gift. What's God's gift? It's a little difficult to know. Grammatically, it's near to impossible. It may be that he's saying that the faith is God's gift. It may be that the whole phrase is God's gift. For by grace you're saved through faith, and this is God's gift. Or by grace you're saved through faith, and this faith is God's gift. It's difficult to know, but whether it's a part of it or all of it, all of it is God's gift. Not from works, so that no one can boast. Why? God has done this. Notice now something we're going to come back to in a minute. For we are His creation, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time so that we should walk in them. We have been created in Christ Jesus for good works. That's a part of the regeneration package that occurs in the life of a true Christian. And so, therefore, friends, when you see someone who says, I'm a Christian, but I live like a non-Christian, act like a non-Christian, think like a non-Christian, the miracle of regeneration has not occurred. Because a part of that package, that salvation package expressed in regeneration is, we've been created for good works. God has done something in us so that good works are forthcoming. To not have those good works is to invalidate the supposed experience of regeneration. Again, I beg you to understand the defective view of regeneration is the reason why we had a lordship controversy. Mm, Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. There is a great deal here. For the sake of time, let me just pick it up in verse 13. Same kind of language. And when you were dead. Now that sets the time frame, doesn't it? When you were dead. When you were dead, unable to respond to spiritual stimulation, when you were dead in trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, He made you alive with 
Him. This is God's work. God does it. It is a monergistic work. Titus chapter 3. I want us to leave. I want, to, I want us to have enough time for some interaction, friends. So let me hurry up. Titus chapter 3. This is such an important passage. Verse 1, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work, to slander no one, to avoid fighting and to be kind, always showing gentleness to all people. For we too were once foolish, disobedient, deceived, captives of various passions and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful, detesting one another. This is who we were. But when the goodness and love for man appeared from God our Savior, He saved us. Notice, He saved us, not by works of righteousness that we had done. But, in contrast to the works of righteousness we have done, according to His mercy, through the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. Notice, God did this through the means of the Holy Spirit. We saw it in John 3. The agent of, the Holy Spirit, the agent of regeneration is the Holy Spirit. And notice, I'll go ahead and show you something now rather than come back to it in a few moments. Notice, this Spirit He poured out on us abundantly through or by means of Jesus Christ our Savior. In other words, this monergistic work of the Spirit bringing us new life is the consequence of or predicated upon the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. It is the cross that purchases for us the gift of regeneration. Just like Jesus teaches in John chapter 3. Very important, friends. This brings us back to the cross. We never divorce the ministries of the Spirit apart from the cross. You get into trouble in your systematic theology when you divorce isolated doctrines from the cross. The cross is everything. James chapter 1. James chapter 1. Verse 16. Don't be deceived, my dearly loved brothers. Every generous act and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. With Him there is no variation or shadow cast by turning. Watch. By His own choice. The initiative is sovereign. He Gave us a new birth. Monergistic. He gave us new birth as an expression of His own sovereign will. Notice now, by the message of truth. The agent of regeneration, the Holy Spirit. The instrument of regeneration, the scriptures in general, the gospel in particular. There is an instrument that the Spirit of God uses to effect a new birth, and that, that instrument is the word of truth, the message of the truth, the message of the gospel. But again, you'll notice, it is accomplished by God's own sovereign prerogative, performed by Him all by Himself. He gave us a new birth. 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. Notice verse 3. 1 Peter chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has given us a new birth. 
He has given this to us. It's an expression of His grace. It isn't triggered by something we do. It is something He does all by Himself. Who is the subject of this gift? He is. He has given us a new birth into a living hope. Watch now. Through or by means of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. There again it is. The gift of regeneration predicated upon the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. We saw that in John 3, we saw it in Titus 3, here now in 1 Peter chapter 1. The gift of the new birth given by God is not something done capriciously or arbitrarily, but done as a consequence of what Jesus Christ has accomplished in His work of redemption. Regeneration is the consequence of redemption. That wonderful gift of grace purchased at the cross. Verse 22 by obedience to the truth, having purified yourselves for sincere love of the brothers, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Why? Since you have been born again. And again, I would stress the fact, friends, that what is being emphasized here is a monergistic regeneration because the verb here again is in the passive voice. It is not something we do. It is something that is done to us. For those of you who like to do Bible study, know this. Know this, that so often the answers to things are found in the verbs. Chase the verbs. Follow the verbs. Look at the tenses of the verbs. Look at the mood of the verbs. Look at the voice of the verbs. Here, used in a passive, it tells you, friends, it's not something we do. It's something that God does to us. And notice how this happens. Not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. What is this imperishable seed? Through the living, enduring Word of God. The agent... The Holy Spirit. God does this. What is the instrument He uses? The Gospel. The Scriptures. And so this is why if we're concerned about the work of regeneration, praying for the work of regeneration, asking God to grant us the effects of the Spirit and the work of regeneration, our business needs to be about declaring the Christ-centered Word. Because that's what He uses. So it is a monergistic work. It is a work that God Himself performs. Secondly, we've already seen these passages. It is predicated upon the redemptive work of Christ, purchased, this gift of regeneration is, in the work of the cross, as is every good thing. And finally, turn with me to 1 John. It is effectual. It is effectual. Friends, what's the, what's, what's the purpose of First John? He tells us what it is. Don't ever preach First John unless your purpose is in sync with the author's purpose. What's the author's purpose? Great thing about the writings of John is he tells you why he wrote. So you never preach the Gospel of John apart from John's own stated purpose in chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. John tells us what his purpose is. Anybody know? Look at chapter 5. Exactly. Chapter 5, verse 12. The one who has the Son has life. The one who doesn't have the Son of God does not have life. I have written these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. In other words, I've written this book to help you understand assurance of salvation. So that when someone comes into my office and they're struggling with assurance of salvation, I'm going to take them to the one book in the Bible that was written to answer that dilemma, to deal with that dilemma. I want to be in keeping with the Spirit-intended purpose of the text, don't you? And so when someone comes and they say, Art, I'm really struggling, am I really a Christian or not? One of the things I always do is I take him to 1 John. And there are many ways that John goes about talking about the concept of assurance of salvation, how a person can really know if they are a follower of Christ. And one of the ways he does this is by talking four or five times about the new birth. So look at chapter 2. I'm just going to show you a couple of verses and we'll wrap it up and 
take some questions if you'd like. Look at chapter 2, verse 28. So now, little children, remain in Him, so that when He appears we may have boldness and not be ashamed before Him at His coming. If you know that He is righteous, you know this as well. Everyone who does what is right has been born of Him. Now, friends, there are two verbal ideas there. This is not, this is not meaningless stuff. This is huge. So hang in there with me. Notice the two verbs. Everyone who does what is right. In the Greek text, that's a present In the Greek tense, the present almost always speaks of durative, ongoing, continuous action. Everyone who keeps on continually doing what is right has been born of Him. That second verb, has been born, is in the perfect tense. What does the present tense convey? Ongoing action. The perfect tense past action with ongoing results. And when these two verbs are used, when these two tenses are used in proximity to each other, the perfect tense occurs prior to the present tense. So what he is saying is, everyone who keeps on continually doing what is right has already been born of God. How do I know if I've been born of God? I keep on continually doing what is right. You see how the tenses help explain this? The perfect tense occurs in time prior to the present tense. This is the person who keeps on continually doing what is right. Why? Because they already have been born of God. Are you, are you following not, if not, help me here. This is going to prove to be huge in just a minute. Okay? Chapter 3, verse 9. Everyone who has been born of God, perfect tense, does not sin. Present tense. How do I know if I have been born of God? This person does not continually sin because his seed remains in him. He is not able to sin, present tense, because he has been born of God, perfect tense. Now, friends, which comes first, being born of God or not sinning? Being born of God, the perfect tense comes before the present tense. The perfect tense comes before the present tense. Chapter 4, verse 7. Dear friends, let us love one another because love is from God and everyone who loves, present tense, everyone who loves, in this context, loving the family of God, loving the brethren, everyone who keeps on continually loving, has been born of God, perfect tense. What comes first, being born of God or loving everyone? Being born of God. And the consequence? He loves the brethren. What's the consequence of being born of God? He loves the brethren. In the prior texts, what's the consequence of being born of God? He doesn't continue in sin. Chapter 5, verse 1. Everyone who believes, present tense, that Jesus is the Messiah has been born of God, perfect tense. Do you see how huge that is? What comes first and what comes second? The perfect tense always comes before the present tense. You have been born of God, therefore you believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Faith? does not produce grace. Grace produces faith. Regeneration precedes faith. Now, if you want exegetical evidence, not logical evidence, this is irrefutable. 
And there are two or three more of these kind of passages in 1 John. But his point is, this is how you can know someone has been authentically born of God. They don't continue in sin. They love the people of God. They believe that Jesus is the Messiah. But the point is, the new birth occurs prior to these other things. The grammar makes this impossible to understand in any other way. Okay? You know what I'm telling you? The new birth accomplishes something. And if it's not being accomplished, then I don't care if a person has walked an aisle, repeated a prayer, raised a hand. The new birth has not yet occurred. The new birth is effectual. It produces. Okay. David, how much time do you want to take, brother? Five minutes? Isn't that great? doesn't leave me time to embarrass myself. What's that? Okay. Uh, there, there may not be anything anybody wants to say, which is, which is fine, but uh, thoughts, mm, suggestions, disagreements, questions, how do we work this out in our ministries, how do we live with people who don't believe this? Yeah, Bri- Brian, right? <coughs> go, go ahead, Brian. Mm. Well, let me answer your first question. I don't think, Brian, I could disagree with you more enthusiastically. I think you have to teach and preach this stuff. This is not just for me. This is the truth and the teaching of the Word of God. Now, I don't think, Brian, you know, we we, we put the tulip up there. I pastored the same church for 19 years. I preached on the doctrines of grace once. But if you decide you're going to go through the Gospel of John... And you get to John chapter 3, you are duty bound to explain that text and what it means and all of its implications. And I think through the course of your pastoral ministry, you have to do this. Our pastor Jeff is going through Ephesians. It's all good and fine. You get to chapter 2 and you've got it. You've got it right between the eyes. Your responsibility as a pastor is not to do what's going to hold the congregation together. Your job as a pastor is to re-talk God's talk. And if the text says, he made us alive, then I'm being unfaithful to my call if I don't explain what that means. Now, you may not choose to preach eight messages on dead like Jeff did. Okay? (laughs) Uh, You may not choose to do, but but I I think the other thing, Brian, is that we always want to be bringing our congregation along. I would never say where the congregation is theologically, it's my job to preserve the peace. My job is always, 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 always to be working for reformation. So, for example, at our church, we had a gigantic wood carving on the back, on the front wall, it said Soli Deo Gloria. On the back wall, it said Semper Reformanda, always reforming. So in that sense, I'm not a Reformed Christian. I am a reforming Christian. And part of my job as a pastor is to keep on continually reforming that congregation by teaching the truth. Now, I want to do it, Brian, in a way that is winsome. I have no desire to beat people over the head with a five-pronged club. That kind of ugly Calvinism, I have no patience with. But I think I can preach monergistic regeneration in a way, I think, by the grace of God that causes people to leave saying, I never realized how much God determined our salvation. I think we can do that. And I think we have to do that. (coughs) No, no, it's... Yeah, you know, um, and, and of course we have to realize that we stand in good stead because they hated Jesus in John 6 for teaching the same thing. So, I mean, this is, you know what, guys, and I tell my students at the seminary all the time, if your goal is to be like, please do not go into the ministry. If your goal is to hold a congregation together, if the greatest fear in your life is losing people, do not go into the congregation. You need to be a prophet, which means at times that you need to say things that are difficult, that are challenging. Um, I think we can say them in a way that's winsome and compelling. Um, And the other thing to keep in mind is, Brian, 
um, is that what I would do in a church that has never had this before would be much different than what I would do in my own church that I pastored for 20 years. Right? So it's a little here, a little there, a little here, a little there, a little here, a little there, trying to be sensitive to what's going on, but always kind of always kind of pushing them along. The other thing is, I want to teach them that truth, Brian, from the exegesis of the text. What I'm not going to do is I'm not going to do a series on um, monergistic regeneration and preach it from the perspective of logic. At the end of the day, if they believe something because of their logic, I'm altogether unsatisfied. I want to show them that's what the text teaches. So as we're meandering through Ephesians and we get to chapter 2, but a bing, it's there. And I'm going to press into that thing. Eric, I think 2 Timothy chapter 4, that I'm going to stand before the judge of the living and the dead. And therefore I am to preach the word. I think the fact that I'm going to stand before the judge of the living and the dead, I think, Eric, the other thing is at the end of the day, I love those people. And I believe that the truth is absolutely indispensable for their growth. They may not recognize it. They may not understand it. But the fact of the matter is there are things I have to tell my children that they do not understand is driven by my love for them. That's a revelation of their immaturity. But if I really love them, I can't say as a parent, well, that I'm going to avoid it because they can't understand this as an expression of my love. So I, I begin with the fact that I'm going to stand before the Lord of the church and give an account for how I've disposed of my ministry. That's the first and most important thing, and that includes being faithful to the text at all costs. The second thing is I'm driven by their greatest good. Over against, I'm driven by having the largest crowd. So again, I want to be careful. I don't want to beat people over the head with these things, friends. But as I am walking through the text, I want to show them these things. The other thing is, is that I have to help people understand, and this is where this becomes so important, Brian. I've got to help them understand how an understanding of the doctrines of grace has profound implications on how they do evangelism. Because so much of our sloppy theology is manifested in our techniques and schemes and methods for doing evangelism, which look very little like what we find on the pages of the book of Acts. By the way, just to give you some historical context, and John, John, do you sell revival and revivalism? Okay, I mean, this is a huge book by Ian Murray. Revival and revivalism. If you want an understanding of where in America the movement was made from away from monergistic regeneration into a synergistic regeneration, Ian Murray documents that about as well as you will find anywhere. That's a spectacular book for a number of reasons. It's a fun, fun read. But one of the big themes in this book is in the middle of the Second Great Awakening, the first, the first part of the... The first part of the Second Great Awakening was really taking place under a man by the name of Asa Hell Nettleton. About the halfway point in the Second Great Awakening, Charles Grandison Finney shows up. And by virtue of his belief that man is not born fallen but neutral, the consequence of that is an understanding of regeneration that becomes synergistic, not monergistic. And American evangelicalism has followed from that point forward the trajectory of Finney. We haven't always followed Finney's methodology, but we have often followed Finney's theology. Um, and and that's, that's what we're languishing from in our own churches with regard to the doctrine of the new birth. And uh, Ian Murray in this book records the historical shift there about his... Um, effective and, and, and fun to read as anything you'll come across. Revival and revivalism, Ian Murray. Anything else? Craig. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. We can't shy away from controversy, guys. We can't shy away from controversy. If it's your burden in life to avoid controversy, then you've just let the devil set your agenda. Because the fact of the matter is just about anything that's important is fraught with controversy. 
That's just the nature of the beast, guys. This is a rough and tumble business. This is not for the light, faint of heart. This business of ministry is blood, sweat, and tears. And again, I'm not talking about being mean. I'm not talking about being ugly. I'm talking about a Christianity that is filled with joy and winsomeness, but in a prophetic way says we must be faithful to the truth. And uh, what we have to help people understand now, and I think it's kind of what Craig is pushing us a bit at, is that if this is true theologically, then we have to now give time to consider how it will purify and alter and reform how we do ministry. How we minister to children. Do we get all our children together? Tell them a heart-wrenching story about heaven or hell. Say, do you want to go to heaven? Because Jesus is there, and your friends are going to be there, and your parents are going to be there, and everybody you love is going to be there, and it's going to be really wonderful and happy in heaven. Who wants to go to heaven? Now repeat this prayer after me. And then you get up in front of the church and say, we had 50 children come to faith in Christ last week who aren't any more saved than the man in the moon. An understanding of monergistic regeneration will cause you to see, I can't do that anymore. So what we have to do, friends, is take what we've talked about today and allow it to purify and reform how we do the work of ministry.